You're listening to the Nonprofit Buildup Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Campbell. I want to support movements that can interrupt cycles of injustice and inequity and shift power towards vulnerable and marginalized communities. I've spent years working in and with nonprofits and philanthropies, and I know how important infrastructure is to outcomes. On this show, we'll talk about how to build capacity to transform the way you and your organization work. Hi, everyone. It's Katie, BuildUp's Manager of Global Operations. This week on the Nonprofit BuildUp, we have a special surprise. We are recasting our very first episode of the Nonprofit BuildUp as a two-part series. Over the next two weeks, you will hear Nick's conversation with Sherilyn Eiffel, president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, otherwise known as LDF. Sherilyn is the seventh president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, the nation's premier civil rights legal organization. LDF was founded in 1940 by legendary civil rights lawyer and later Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. Sherilyn served as an assistant counsel for LDF, litigating voting rights cases. This interview was recorded back in May 2020 when the country contended with both a pandemic and growing racial and social justice movements, which two years later is still pressing on in addition to the war in Ukraine and inflated markets worldwide. Sherilyn does such a masterful job of talking about the work of LDF and the work of nonprofits, foundations, and leaders that's needed now more than ever. And with that, here is Sherilyn Eiffel. Hi, Sherilyn. It is so great to have you joining us for our Fast Bill Leader Series. I am really excited about our conversation today. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for reaching out, and I'm looking forward to our talk. Okay. To get us started, can you tell us about the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, your role there, and LDS immediate priority? Sure. So the NAACP Legal Defense Fund was formed by Thurgood Marshall in 1940. This year is our 80th anniversary, and we had planned a big gala, by the way, at Lincoln Center that had to be pulled down because of the pandemic. But we were originally part of the NAACP, and the Legal Defense Fund was created to do the kind of litigation work that, you know, we've become known for for 80 years. It's a pretty extraordinary organization, if you think about it being founded in 1940 and what it meant to create an organization of Black lawyers in 1940 for the purpose of addressing, you know, civil rights and for a of Black people. Of course, the organization is multiracial and has been almost since its beginning, but at its core, it's an African-American legacy institution. And that institution being comprised of lawyers with the intention of using the legal system as a way of dismantling and undermining Jim Crow, breaking the back of Jim Crow, Thurgood Marshall would say. It was a pretty extraordinary undertaking. This is an organization that has over 80 years hired the best and the brightest, you know, the most brilliant law students from the finest law schools in the country who have committed themselves to doing this work. And it has, as a result, become the incubator of so much talent. Many of the people leading the nation's civil rights organizations today are LDF alums. On my second go-round, I was an LDF attorney from 1988 to 1993. I was a voting rights attorney. 
But Vanita Gupta, who heads the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, is a former LDF attorney. Kristen Clark, who heads the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, is a former LDF attorney. Christina Swarns, who's the new head of the Innocence Project, was a few years ago our litigation director. You know, people like Alan Jenkins, who was the founder of the Opportunity Agenda, was an LDF attorney when I was at LDF. And then people who are just influencers out in the world. Maya Wiley was at LDF when I was a young lawyer at LDF. Kirsten Livingston, who's at Wellspring, Todd Cox, you know, it really is the incubator and for generations is the incubator. Duval Patrick, you know, the former governor of Massachusetts and former, for a very brief period, (laughs) presidential candidate, you know, Eric Holder was an intern when he was a student in law school. It's just, it's extraordinary, the roster of people who have been trained at LDF. And that's really what we do is that we train leaders who are deeply grounded in the law of civil rights and and in the constitution and who have the highest level of skill. So that's the organization I'm privileged to lead. LDF separated from the NAACP in 1957. So we've been entirely separate organizations for a very long time, although people continue to confuse us. And I returned to LDF in 2013 to lead the organization. I had been away for 20 years teaching law school and starting law clinics and being a civil rights lawyer in Baltimore, which was an extraordinary and important experience for my return. I was doing a lot of communications work as well. I had a regular column in the route. I joined the board of the Open Society Foundations and then chaired the board of the U.S. programs of the Open Society Foundation. And so I was, you know, spending a lot of time in the foundation world as well. And I brought all that back to LDF at what I thought was a critical moment. I recognize the need for LDF to refresh itself in many ways and to be responsive to what I think had been seismic shifts that happened in this country in the 80s and the 90s that had never really been attended to by civil rights organizations. And I was quite intentional about intending to lift the narrative on race and civil rights in the country and to be there to shape talk about race and not just to do the work of civil rights litigation and policy work. And, you know, it has been successful at a very, very difficult time in this country. I'm very proud of the role that LDF has played and the kind of leadership that people expect from us. You know, when there are police killings of unarmed African-Americans, when Donald Trump, you know, describes people in marching in Charlottesville as, you know, good people on both sides, when Ben Carson really turns his back on the very core of the Fair Housing Act, when Betsy DeVos turns her back on, on the core of public education, People expect to hear from us and we have a voice, we have a platform. And that platform, however, is just the thinnest part because underneath it is this extraordinary litigation work that we're doing in the courts where we're trying to make seismic structural change. Our work is focused almost entirely on the South. I would say 90% of our cases are in the South, although, you know, we've got housing discrimination cases that we've done in Detroit. We have a case right now that we filed in Cleveland challenging water tax liens. We do a lot of work in Baltimore, although many people think of that as the South. We were part of the team that sued NYPD for stop and frisk. So, you know, we do things around the country, but the core of the work remains in the South, really because, first of all, a majority of Black people still live in the South. And we are quite intentional that we are a racial justice organization. The term civil rights is quite expansive now, and we are quite unapologetically and quite intentionally focused on race recognizing that race intersects with many other things. So at the intersection of, you know, race and gender or race and sexual orientation or race and poverty, all of those things are 
intrinsically part of the work, but we lead with race because we think it is critical to continue to have that very intentional and clear conversation. And our focus is Americans with the recognition that that focus of our work has over 80 years cascaded in such a way as to support the advancement of civil rights for all racial minorities, but actually not just racial for my, racial minorities, for women, for members of the LGBTQ community. Everything that we do is to create a vision and an understanding of what rights and justice means in a way that recognizes the full humanity and dignity of every person. And so our work is never exclusive, but the people that we represent and the communities in whose voice we speak and whose history and reality we try to bring into those courtrooms every day are African-Americans. We're at trial right now, as a matter of fact. It's the first virtual trial, first maybe the first virtual trial in the country, but certainly it's the first major civil rights trial that's a virtual trial. This is the case in Florida trying to vindicate the rights of formerly incarcerated people to vote. But it's all being done remotely. And it's quite extraordinary. And our lawyers have been preparing and they're working with lawyers from the ACLU and the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Brennan Center. But the voice that we bring is always quite unapologetically on behalf of African-American communities whose experience is particular and who suffer from the long history and contemporary reality of anti-Black racism that continues to be a part of this country. You asked also about kind of what the areas are that where we work. We work in four principal areas, voting and political participation, economic justice, which encompasses our work in housing and employment, education, and criminal justice. Those are the four pillars. And we often are doing work that's very particular within those areas. So our policing reform campaign is obviously very much part of our criminal justice work. But in that criminal justice work, we do a lot of work you know, challenging jury discrimination, challenging the death penalty. We have a number of clients on death row. We just filed suit last week challenging conditions in the prisons in Arkansas on behalf of inmates who are exposed to COVID. But we also do other things that then we feel are relevant to all those areas. So we're really leaned into and trying to think through various ways to attack algorithmic bias, for example. But algorithmic bias shows up in criminal justice, you know, through risk assessments and gang databases. It shows up in employment. It shows up in housing and lending. You know, it shows up in all kinds of ways. So there are lots of things that we do that we feel touch each of those areas of work and don't fit neatly into any one category. They actually are truly intersectional and draw on all of the different pillars. But those four pillars are the ones that we think are the ones that potentially unlock the door to equality and opportunity for African-Americans. Wow. So as president of this iconic organization, what is your advice to nonprofits that fundraise as a significant part of their budget? So in other words, what do you think should be top of mind for them now, particularly during this time of uncertainty? Well, we've taken the position that we will not stop fundraising. (laughs) We recognize the realities of the current moment. So I think that's the first thing. One of the things that's so critical and important is that you have to be, let me see if I can describe it this way. When you're a litigator, as we are at LDF, and you're working on a case, a really important case, very often the core story is something that happened in the past, right? You know, you were at trial, they struck all the black people from your jury, you were convicted by an all white jury, and so forth. It's something that happened in the past. 
we could be working on that case years later. You know, it didn't make its way to the Supreme Court for five years, right? Or you applied for a job and, you know, another person applied for the job and it's clear that there was racial discrimination at work. Or we have a whole line of cases in which we bring cases on behalf of people for whom criminal background screens are misused to deny employment. So when you're working on a case, although that case is really important and the relief you're seeking is relief that will change things for the future, not just for the individuals in the case, but will structurally change things for the future, the event itself happened in the past. And the reality of of discrimination, for example, is that there are things happening today, like right now, while you and I are talking, (laughs) that are important. And if you're not careful, you get so involved in your litigation that you're not responsive to what is, you know, breaking the heart of your people in this moment, right? So one of the things that is vitally important is that every, you know, organization involved in work in this space has to be nimble enough to be responsive to what is breaking the heart of your people today, to what is cutting off opportunity for them today. When Eric Garner was choked on that street in Staten Island, even though we have many other cases <laughs> that we were dealing with, you have to be responsive to that. And as these videos you know, began to come out and the consciousness of the country was raised about police violence against unarmed African-Americans, even though this is work that had been kind of part of our docket for a very long time, we actually litigated the seminal case in that area, Tennessee versus Garner in the 80s. Even though it was kind of there, we had to create a policing reform campaign. We had to decide the time is right now and our communities have had it. And now we have to decide we're going to take resources from across the complex to deal with this issue. So I think that that nimbleness is what people need to see from us now. We had to do it after Trump was elected. Trump was elected. We were not expecting it. (laughs) Most people were not. But when he was elected, we knew what it would mean. We knew a Trump Justice Department is not going to be the Eric Holder and the Loretta Lynch Justice Department. And the Justice Department, with their tens of thousands of lawyers, is still the main law enforcement uh, apparatus of the country, and the attorney general is the main law enforcement officer, including of the nation's civil rights laws. So we knew we were losing a partner in our core work, and we could never have all the resources of the Department of Justice, but we decided that we would have to become a private attorney general. We would have to become a private DOJ, and we started fundraising from that perspective, and we were right. They're not bringing any voting rights cases. They have stopped doing pattern and practice investigations of police departments, right? So we had to then get into Tulsa and begin to work with that community to help raise consciousness about the need for policing reform there. We had to continue and intensify our work in North Charleston, where Walter Scott was shot in the back. That case may be over, but that community is crying out for, you know, a real attention to the systemic police discriminatory issues in that. And so we've been working with them now for years on that in the hopes of of putting together a case for the future. So we knew that. COVID happens, same thing. Absolute catastrophe for our community, super catastrophe, raising issues really of survival, right, for people. So even though we're working on this systemic structural change that presumes there is a tomorrow, our communities are facing the possibility that for some people there is no tomorrow. And so we had to layer on top of our work, we had to open a new front. So focusing on the four areas that we know, you know, that's where we leaned in, right? I just told you about the case we filed in the Arkansas prison, right? On behalf of inmates who have pre-existing conditions, who suffer from asthma, heart disease, emphysema, who are, you know, are not socially distanced, who have no masks, who have no PPE, who, you know, we really believe 
that what we are going to see out of the prisons is potentially the greatest catastrophe we are going to see around COVID in terms of illness, infection, and death. And disproportionately, these are our people. These are our brothers. These are our sons. These are our moms. These are our uncles. This is not separate from the Black community. We recognize with our education work, LDF still has about 40 desegregation cases that we monitor from the 1960s and from Southern jurisdictions. And we sometimes litigate as well. Issues arise and we use those cases to fight for equity for Black children in the South. And almost immediately when the school closures began, we started to inquire about a variety of things. First of all, whether schools were going to continue providing nutritional support to kids. Now, we heard from a lot of jurisdictions, New York and others, they were going to continue to provide that support. And that was wonderful. We weren't sure about that in Southern jurisdictions. And a number of them said they were going to provide support, did it for a week and then stopped. So in Louisiana, we had to really lean in. New Orleans was fine. But in Saint, where we work, in the rural South, St. Bernard Parish, St. John Parish, St. Martin Parish, St. Mary Parish, no, no nutritional support. The schools just cut it off. And so you have kids who are used to getting one meal or two meals a day and parents who are relying on that for their kids' nutrition suddenly from one day to the next are cut off from having any nutritional support. We tried working with the school districts to no avail. At the same time, in those same school districts, many of them had just cut off instruction. Once school closures happened in early March, they just decided the school year was over and there would be no instruction. And we just were beside ourselves. The thought that our children would have no instruction from March to September, that's like the old sharecropping system when they used to take Black kids out of school, you know, to bring in the crops. This was so horrifying to us that we again began pushing those school districts around these issues without much success. Some of them agreed to do distance learning, but the distance was all online. 18% of Black households in Louisiana have no computer. So there had to be worksheets that are mailed. There have to be worksheets that are dropped off. When you say distance learning, everybody thinks, you know, you and I know what that means and we're doing it right now. But that's not the reality for nearly 20% of Black families in Louisiana. So we leaned in with all the school districts to no avail. And finally, we put the governor on blast. We did a letter that we released publicly and began to really put the pressure on. And he agreed to meet with us. And meet, I'm saying in air quotes, because obviously it was virtual. And two weeks ago, you know, we had an hour and a half long phone call in the morning. And it was critical. We were on the phone with the governor of Louisiana, John Bell Edwards, and the superintendent of schools. And it was interesting because obviously they knew about our letter and they had reached out to the parishes who all told them, yes, we are. Of course, we're going to provide. So of course, we're providing food. But we knew we had our clients. We had just talked with our parents that week. And so we were able to tell them it ain't happening, (laughs) you know, that even where some places are providing food, parents can't get to it. There's no public transportation. So the whole point is that, you know, when your kids had school, the school bus picked them up and took them to school and that's where they ate. How are they supposed to get the food? We documented the percentage of Black families that don't have cars and that are not able to get to the food. And we documented the whole distance learning piece. You could hear in the phone call that the governor and the superintendent were alarmed and it was clear that they were learning as we were speaking. And that afternoon, the governor, in his announcement that the schools would be closed for the rest of the school year, issued a proclamation requiring that there be distance learning, high tech and low tech and that every school district was expected to fulfill the obligation to provide nutritional support for children. And then we started to monitor that after the governor's announcement to make sure that that was happening. We just did it in Leeds City, Alabama, where we were the school district was under a DSEG order, not serving food. They just announced on April 2nd, no more food will be served 
until further notice. We went into court. By into court, I mean <laughs> we filed papers in court. The judge held a virtual hearing on the phone, I guess, 10 days ago. And last week, Friday night, said this violates a desegregation order that requires equity. You must begin food service again. And it just began again on Tuesday. So we used the docket that we had to address what we knew were immediate critical COVID needs for our children, which was nutritional support and education. We have been the leading voice on the issue of ending water shutoffs and utility shutoffs during the pandemic as part of our housing discrimination work. We have been working over the last few years on the issue of water affordability because we did a report in which we documented the way in which water tax liens are leading disproportionately to loss of Black home ownership. So Black people unable to afford their water bill, don't pay the water bill. The tax lien is either sold to a private party or just sold, taken over by the city. And then if you don't pay it, your home's put up for foreclosure. And so we began to document the number of Black people losing their homes through that process. We did a lot of work in Baltimore in ending water tax lien foreclosures, a lot of work in Detroit. Even Flint was prepared to foreclose on 7,000 families three summers ago, where there's not even potable water because of water tax liens. And they finally overturned that law. We just filed suit in Cleveland challenging their water tax liens. So we were very clear about the issue of water. Pandemic hit. We were deeply concerned. We first asked no evictions. We knew that the federal government had said there would be no foreclosures, but many Black people are renters. And we needed, we still don't have a moratorium on eviction. So we've been working state by state, city by city, trying to put that pressure on. But we also knew that water shutoffs and electricity shutoffs would be detrimental, particularly in a pandemic in which we are asking everybody to wash their hands all the time and in which there are school closures. And so school children are at home and we're sending children home in the condition in which there's no running water and in which there's no electricity. So we have been pushing the National Conference on Mayors, the National Governors Association, going state by state. We're actually starting a, launching a shaming campaign online later this week, going state by state, shaming those jurisdictions that have allowed water shutoffs to continue. We're asking jurisdictions to re-engage water where possible. Washington, D.C. is doing that. Massachusetts is doing that. Turn the water back on if you really want people to be able to deal with this pandemic. And most of all, don't create a public safety issue for children who you're requiring to stay home, but you're also not suspending evictions. So you're telling everybody stay home, but you're also allowing people to be put out of their home, or you're telling people to stay home and you're allowing them to be home without water, without running water and without electricity. So we've been really, we're still grappling with that issue and continuing to lean into that issue. And then of course, voting. I gotta say, I feel forever changed by Wisconsin. It represents the failure of every level of government for African-American people. I wrote a piece about it in Slate. I'm happy to send it to you called Never Never Forget Wisconsin. And I, I just think it's so, you know, the piece really talks about the images of people standing in line with the masks on and how it's a snapshot of American failure. But I also call it a snapshot of the deep nobility of Black people who showed their determination to be full citizens, to participate in the political process. And so on the theory of Never Forget Wisconsin, we sued in Arkansas. We just filed suit in South Carolina demanding the extension of absentee ballot opportunities. We're filing another suit this week, but I can't tell you where it is, but in another Southern state and then in another Southern state the following week. We are looking to November and we are very clear that we want to make sure that there are multiple opportunities for voting for our people. We're not saying only mail-in voting because there are Black people who want to vote in person. But in order for Black people to vote in person, we cannot have to make a choice between our health and our citizenship. 
And so that requires a full menu of things. First of all, we need poll workers. A lot of the reason there were so few polling places in Milwaukee on that election day is because so many poll workers called out, understandably. Most poll workers, including in our community, are elderly. We don't want to risk their health either. So that means that we need to be training additional poll workers this summer, younger poll workers. Poll workers have to be trained in how to manage themselves in this pandemic. We have to be providing to poll workers all of the PPE that they need. The polling places themselves, we have to be able to assure people that they are wiped down and fully clean. We have to be able to provide PPE at the polling place for voters who, do, who come without it, who don't have a mask or who don't have gloves. All of that is essential. We have to expand early voting so that we undermine long lines by having a longer voting period and more opportunities to vote. We're also really encouraging our community to be more prepared to vote, to not go into the vote, voting booth and for the first time be reading the ballot. You got to download that thing Sunday night. You got to know what all the bond questions are, because that's what makes you take long standing in the voting place. You don't want to be standing there for 15 minutes during a pandemic. You want to get in, vote and get out. But then also distance voting. And that means extending the period for absentee ballot requests, extending the period for absentee ballot returns. That was the issue in Wisconsin that the Supreme Court wouldn't allow the extended time to return the absentee ballots. It means increasing online registration so that people can register online. It means ensuring that people really know that they have to take time to do that process, to order an absentee ballot, to have it come to their house, to send it back in, to have it be counted. So we're really serious about leaning into our communities in August and September about preparing to vote. You're not going to be able to just wake up on November 2nd and decide, hey, I really feel like I want to vote tomorrow. It's not that kind of scene anymore. Because if you're going to vote in person, you got to have your PPE and you need to be ready. If you're going to vote distance, you have to have ordered your absentee ballot. You have to have sent it in and so forth. So all of our voting work is really focused around making sure that that full menu is available so that we can ensure that every eligible African-American voter can participate in the political process and vote. And then lastly, of course, is the census and ensuring that people participate in the census online. Um, so everything that we're doing about stay at home, we just did a joint statement with the leaders of every Black church denomination uh, that was released last Friday when Governor Kemp's, Kemp's order came out reopening the state, basically telling our people to stay home. And it was, you know, civil rights leaders and Black church denomination leaders saying, this ain't the time. You know, you need to stay home, prioritize your health, prioritize your family. But we ended the statement by saying, and while you're at home, register to vote and make sure that you fill out the census. So that's a long way of answering your question that what I say to nonprofits is you've got to be responsive to the needs of your people in the moment. And you've got to figure out a way to be doing, if you're like an organization like mine that does structural change or whatever are your long-term imperatives have to be happening at the same time that you are responsive to what your people need today. So keep fundraising, make sure that the work you're doing is responsive to what is happening in the moment. Don't give up your structural work, but make sure it's responsive to what's happening in the moment. Invest in your communications. This is the only lifeline we have to the people we represent to our donors, to our supporters. So this is no time to skimp on your comms. You got to invest in your comms. You have to have the apparatus to invest in your comms. Reassure your people, take care of your staff. One of the things I'm proudest of is that at LDF, we've just been prudent over the years. And so, you know, we're not facing layoffs. We're not facing any immediate, you know, catastrophe. Obviously we have lost our major fundraising event and so forth. And so like everybody else, we're reeling. 
But the ability for our people to focus on their work and not have to focus on whether they're going to get a paycheck is vitally important. And so make sure that you're doing your best to reassure your staff and your people. We have been increasing our all staff meetings. We do them now every two weeks. So just trying to increase that communication with the staff. I'm regularly sending emails to the staff. We created a newsletter of our COVID-19 work because our staff wants to know, what are we doing in this pandemic? They want to feel that they are speaking into the moment. We acknowledge how frightened we all are, right? This is the first time that we're doing the work in which not only are we worried for our clients, but we're worried for ourselves, our families, our friends, our peers, and to acknowledge that reality. We have provided our staff with, you know, we provide them with lots of wellness links and other resources to help kind of navigate this period. And then just keep talking to your funders. Um, Make sure they hear from you and that they know what you're doing. You know, if asked, they should feel like they know what you're doing. There shouldn't be a presumption. And ask for advice. When the pandemic struck and things started to close and the stock market tanked, I was calling people saying, not for money. You know, I was calling foundation leaders to say, tell me how you're thinking about this moment. This is a moment of crisis leadership. I want to make sure that I'm being the right kind of leader. Tell me, you know, this is what I'm thinking. These are the steps I'm planning to take. This is what I'm doing with my senior team. This is about, this is a leadership moment also. And foundations and donors are not just about money. They're about counsel and support and advice from moments just like this when we need other leaders to help us think through how we lead in a time like none of us have ever faced. No, I I really like your response for a variety of reasons. I think at, at the core, it goes back to exactly what you said, which is be responsive to the thing that is breaking the heart of your people today. Be consistent in doing the work. And Another reason that I really like it is that you're providing advice that you yourself are following, right? And you're providing examples and context behind this is how it's playing out for us and here's how we're doing it. And the last piece that I really like about it is that it's practical, right? And you're mm-hmm. talking about just picking up the phone and asking for advice yeah. and, and strategic counsel and being able to partner. And so I think that is really sound advice for nonprofits, particularly those that are fundraising. And if I were to say to you then, Sherilyn, let's look at the other side of the conversation and look at the funders. Mm. What's the advice that you would have for funders beyond, you know, give more money, for example, but what advice would you provide for them to support nonprofit sustainability, both during and after this crisis? And that concludes part one of the series. Next week, Sherilyn will answer Nick's question about what funders can be doing differently to support nonprofit sustainability during this time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nonprofit Buildup. To access the show notes, additional resources, and information on how you can work with us, please visit our website at buildupadvisory.com. We invite you to listen again next week as we share another episode about scaling impact by building infrastructure and capacity in the nonprofit sector. Keep building bravely.